Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 111th episode, I'll be talking to Sebastian Deacon, writer, musician, and associate editorial director for Planned Parenthood, about opera and classical music. Along the way, we discuss the dangers of graduation neckgear, what pizza chain to eat at before the symphony, and music that runs the gamut from stupid to inexplicable. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? <laughs> well, my name is Sebastian Deacon, Seb for short. I am a writer slash musician person. I have a day job working as a associate editorial director in Planned Parenthood's national offices here in New York. And on the side, I do a little bit of writing. I am wrapping up a book on Final Fantasy VI for Boss Fight Books. And see, for all the things I knew about you, I actually had no idea that you worked for Planned Parenthood. That rules. Good job. Yeah. Nice picking of a career there. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I started right before the 2016 elections. Oh, go figure. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We thought 2016 was going to go very differently. And so (laughs) the day after the election, there was a little bit of like, oh, boy, we have to rethink everything now. This is not what we were expecting to happen. (laughs) So it's been a wild ride. But here we are, 2020. Things are hopefully going to be different starting in January. Absolutely. And I actually met you through your husband, who is Brett White, who is a previous guest of the show. Yeah. Lover of all things television. Yes. Owner with him of two famous cats, or at least one famous cat and another cat who looks like that famous cat. (laughs) That is correct. Yes. But I want to know, of the two cats, of Jean Parmesan and Dolores Van Cartier, who picked which, or was it like an accord between you and Brett? So... They are brother and sister. They're from the same litter. They're a bonded pair. That's what they called them. We met them actually at a cat cafe on the Lower East Side. It's kind of a funny story. So I had wanted cats for a while, and Brett was like, no, I don't want cats. No, I don't want cats. (laughs) Because the only cats he had ever really interacted with were feral cats that his sister, like, took in from the street. Okay. And so they were all just insane. So he, like, had no concept of what a friendly cat was like. (laughs) And so I kept being like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we adopted cats? Wouldn't it be cool if we adopted cats? And then one day, my team at work, we took, like, a stress relief outing to this cat cafe. And I was like, hmm, because all the cats were up for adoption. (laughs) I was like, I like some of these cats. Maybe I should adopt them. And everyone on my work team was like, yeah, you got to adopt them. You got to adopt them. (laughs) Thank you, enablers. I know, right? So then we like we got back to the office the next day, and they were like sending me pictures of the cats. And I was like, my husband doesn't want to. My husband doesn't want to. It was like a Friday. I was like, Brett, 
why don't we like have a date night tonight why don't we like go to this <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> let's just like go to this cat cafe no pressure we're just gonna like go and hang out we'll have like a slice of cake and hang out with the cats and then because <laughs> there were these i mean obviously like i picked gene and dolores out in advance and so i was like yeah we can just like you know like take a look at them like see what you think of them <laughs> And then we we, walk, we walked into the cat cafe. We had our, our cake, and the cats are in, like, a separate space. So then we went into the cat area. I immediately, like, turned to the attendant, and I was like, can I have the adoption papers, please? <laughs> and, so, and, so, and so I was like— Real subtle. I know. I was, like, filling them out, and I was like, Brett, this is no pressure. It's, like, just to reserve a spot in line. Like, if we change our minds, if you end up not liking them, then it's fine. So filled out the adoption papers, and then we went out to dinner. I was like, let's start thinking of names for them. <laughs> and so I just, I basically, like, hoodwinked my husband into adopting these cats. And the, the hilarious thing is that, like, we brought them home, and it was evident a month in that the cats liked him way more than they liked me. <laughs> like, I've had cats, like, for most of my life, and it was just like, oh, the irony of this whole situation. <laughs> Perfect. But I do like this extended caper where, I don't know, I always see Brett as kind of a bit of a guileless, kind of open person and just being like, yeah, sure, I'll go along with all of this. Then being like, oh, and by the way, I've already signed the papers. They are, in fact, our cats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was all a twisted web of lies. But now you have cats who love you. <laughs> yeah, it was truly, it was a long con. It was a long con. <laughs> But we did end up with cat. I mean, he loves them. And they happen to just be like wonder cats. They're in, you can clip their nails and they just like are super chill about it. You can give them a shower. They love being in the shower. They're nuts. It's not, I've never <laughs> had, like, I think it's because they grew up like being poked and prodded by people all the time. And now it's just super chill for them just to be with some people. Yeah. They've never scratched us. They've never bitten. They just like, they just exist. <laughs> they're great i love them because i had a cat when kimiko met me and she mm. at the time hated cats because her grandmother had an old nasty cat who she still has a scar on her forehead from that cat jumping from the top of the stairs and landing on her head oh no and so when she met my tiny black kitten named olive he sort of did that thing that little cats will do where they'll like kind of climb up your arm and like the claws will scratch a little and she burst into tears oh no and i'm like i've made a huge mistake introducing this cat to my burgeoning relationship eventually they became friends and and kimika was actually responsible for us getting the second cat who is bolin because like she was waiting for me by my work and there was a pet store that had like a the day where the rescue society comes and so they had all the little kittens running around and she's like oh come down and meet me i've met this really nice one and yeah it was super friendly and also at the time i had moved to a place where olive hated it because it was ground floor and so lots of street noise and he was turning into an anxious little cat so it's like yeah. All right, we'll have two now. And that second one has become, like, her buddy. Aww. He is sweet to her, will, like, run across me to get to her on the couch. And it's like, she will still say, Olive, I hate you, you're the worst. But Bobo is my good boy. Why can't you be more like Bobo, Olive? <laughs> <laughs> That's both wonderful and awful. I love it. This is the woman who used to cuddle her dog and say things like, no one will love you like your mom. And I'm like, can you not say that to our actual child, please? <laughs> oh, no, I would just say it to Junior. But it's true, though. <laughs> it's like, 
<laughs> cool. Cool, cool, cool. All right, Seb, so let's start with the basics then. Whereabouts did you grow up? So I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, halfway between Canada and the Gulf of Mexico. I grew up there. I went to school at WashU in St. Louis. Everyone gets confused. It's not actually in Washington State. It's Washington University in St. Louis. <laughs> Studied French literature and music while I was there and did a little bit of opera singing professionally. Am I moving too quickly? This is this feels like I went no. very fast from like childhood to like, oh, now I'm a professional. It's your life. I have questions for later. But yes, please continue. So you actually sung professionally. That's great. Yeah, I did a few operas. I was just in the chorus. I sang in the St. Louis Symphony Chorus, which is like, I don't know. I mean, it's like the best chorus in St. Louis, I think. Obviously, they're like attached to the symphony orchestra there. And so I got to sing a bunch of really awesome masterworks with them. And I also had a church gig, as most singers do. So every Thursday and Sunday, showed up, got my 60 bucks and went home. I always used to say, it pays to praise. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, so I did that for a bit in St. Louis, and then I actually lost my job in the recession in 2008, and then I ended up having to move to New York because it was the first place I was offered a job, and then sort of the singing slowly petered off from there, so I haven't actually sung professionally in quite a bit, but still love to sing. That's fantastic. So I'm going to do the tourist thing because St. Louis is one of the few cities in the United States that I've actually been to. Oh, wow. I know, right? Our friends Alex and Eloise were getting married and he's from St. Louis, like extremely from St. Louis. Oh, yep. And has been living in Australia for, I think, six or seven years, but but is the sort of guy who flies back twice a year, Thanksgiving and Christmas, at least Mm -hmm. until this year. So when they got married, there was a discussion of having it here that was quickly quashed with, no, but we're having it in St. Louis, though. There was, in fact, toasted ravioli and Eno's pizza at the reception. Oh, are you kidding me? It was good. And yeah, and everyone was handed out frozen custard. It was pretty dope. Oh my God. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. So where in St. Louis was the wedding? Do you remember? Oh gosh, I don't. Uh, again, my, my geography is a little foggy. But yeah, it was it was at a particular, like they had the reception at a bar and it was like, they had rented out the whole place. And that was where I learned that at weddings, because I enjoy a drink, but I also know that, you know, if you're there for a reception, you are there for the long haul. So I tend to be like, I'll stick to something simple. I won't drink too much because I want to have fun and be in it for the long haul. Yeah. But because it was like, oh, you know, I didn't like the beer that they had on tap and I didn't want to be the the dickhead who's like, oh, yeah, I'd like the special beer from under the bar, please. It's like, no, come on, guys. So I just said, I'll just have a gin and tonic. And then I learned exactly how freely they pour gin at an open bar at a wedding in St. Louis. Yeah. That night got real messy. Yeah. But what we found is the rest of the trip is that I have a couple friends who live in the area who had recommended I go to the city museum. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which was an experience. Yeah. I've talked about it previously with my friend Becky, who's also from St. Louis, where it's essentially a sort of an unmapped adventure location where you can go through tunnels and like find yourself in weird rooms out of Bioshock and stuff. And so I was very excited about that. It's truly insane. I actually, I have a scar on my head from (laughs) cutting my scalp open, climbing around in the caverns at the city museum. I actually have been to a wedding there. I love that place. It's so cool. They have like a rooftop bar that I went to. I remember on the 4th of July one year, we saw the fireworks. Yeah. Oh man, that place is so great. 
they used to have circus stuff. My brother used to do like juggling and acrobatics and stuff, and they had circus stuff that he was involved in. Oh my god, I have the weirdest family. <laughs> um, we would go there for stuff like that. Yeah, they've got an aquarium there. It's the weirdest place. It's impossible to explain to someone. I, like on one floor, there was like a ballroom, and then there was a bank vault you could go into, and it was like yeah. a house of mirrors. There was a robot bar. All the little tables and stuff were like almost like MST3K robots, like Frankenstein together. That must be new. They're like constantly building onto it. The rooftop wasn't open when we were there because they were renovating something, but I could see the giant mechanical praying mantis from street level. They've got like a school bus that hangs off the edge of the roof that you can like walk into and like look over and you're just like, I don't know, in this school bus that's dangling from the roof of a museum. It's so, <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's so weird. It's so fucked up. Oh, can I curse? I hope I can curse. Oh, absolutely. Excellent. Okay, great. Yeah, we have earned our explicit tag many times over. <laughs> and like part of me is like, okay, well, once we return to precedented times, I would love to take Hero there. But also the helicopter parent in me at the idea of, oh, by the way, your kid could disappear down a tunnel that you can't fit through. Yeah. And you'll see them eventually, I'm sure. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's insane. Like, they, uh, like those like wire cages, like tunnels that go over the ceiling. And yeah, I went once I had to wear knee pads to squeeze those. <laughs> course i was i was a little skinnier then but um, <laughs> oh man oh that's such a great place and you toasted ravioli and emo's pizza man you did like the whole like st louis experience the whole shebang yeah frozen custard god so growing up in st louis what sort of kid were you i must have been insufferable <laughs> that's a great way to start I was a very smart kid. I was in the gifted program in my school district, and I loved to learn. I loved to read. I loved all that kind of stuff. I think that's sort of like what drew me to classical music in the first place. But I was very quiet and very slow. My mom always told me that I was a super quiet baby and that I just <laughs> kind of like was looking around and taking it all in. And I remember like my friends always used to yell at me because I would be walking too slowly because I would just be like looking around at stuff. And when I moved to New York, that actually became a huge issue, like me walking too slowly, <laughs> because there's like, you know, like walking slowly in, you know, like suburban St. Louis, and then there's like walking slowly in New York City. So like, I really had to up my game and start like yeah. going, yeah, like going <laughs> the New York City speed because they walk very quickly here. You know, like in school, you know, I was like the Hermione Granger. I know there's got to be like a better reference than that, but I'm now I'm functionally illiterate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like always had my hand up first, always trying to correct the teacher. <laughs> I laugh because there is some commonality there. Absolutely. It's not just, will I do well on this test, but how fast can I finish this test? Yes. To be mm -hmm. the first one to finish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I was definitely like, I carried that with me through high school. I mean, I learned how to not be quite so insufferable in high school. I was, I think I was a little more congenial toward my teachers that yeah i graduated valedictorian this is not bragging or humble bragging this is like just giving context for the kind of person that i am it's just the facts man okay i would never say such a thing yeah <laughs> also just to point out we are here to talk about you so it's perfectly okay to have a little break if you want to that's true yeah so I was high school valedictorian, president of National <laughs> Honor Society, student body secretary, president of my honors choir, you know, like the whole shebang. I had so much neck gear around my neck at graduation that I think it actually like broke a disc <laughs> in my neck. But yeah, I was definitely like that. I was that bitch. I was the one who was <laughs> studying all the time and pulling off 
feats of strength that we <laughs> so I was also a national merit scholar which was like a big deal because I was like the only one in my school district and I was in the first ever AP chemistry class in my school district and so teacher had never taught AP chemistry before no one had ever taken the test before and I got one of those like self-study books like a month before the test oh no and I realized I was like oh my teacher has not covered three quarters of the material that's going to be on this test and so like oh no I was like trying to learn all this stuff I ended up getting a three which is like the middle like a medium score it's like the most average you can be on an AP test yeah I was like the only person to even pass the test like everyone else (laughs) like totally bombed it so I was that kind of kid I'm not that kind of adult anymore I think now I'm kind of the guy who like I know a little bit about a lot but I don't know a lot about anything anymore that's kind of how I feel I feel kind of scattered and all over the place as an adult so I like to think of it as you were setting yourself up to be a Jeopardy champion Maybe, yeah, a little bit. I did have a friend who actually went on Jeopardy and won quite a bit of money, but I don't think I could do it. I think the pressure would get to me too much. I forget who said it, but it was someone saying that the whole point of Jeopardy is that you can't really study for it because the categories are so varied, but also so specific. It's like, well, studying for it is like, well, you could be wasting time and defocusing the knowledge that might help you. Right. So it's kind of like the only way to win Jeopardy is to walk in exactly as you are and have that be the right person to be on the day. Yeah, it's really like, it's got to be hit or miss. I definitely watched him on the show, but I have like no idea how he even did it. Because I like post high school developed like test anxiety. And so like now I feel like if I were on Jeopardy, I'd be like, oh, Jesus Christ, like no, no (laughs) way. I'd be like the last one. I also don't have like great reflexes. So like, I would probably be (laughs) the the, the button thing is intense. Yeah, mash the button. I don't think I know enough about anything. (laughs) I know a little bit about a lot, but I think it's too little about a lot. I've always said that when it comes, because I love like trivia contests and stuff, I've rarely won them. I love them because like you said, it's like you get a category that's dud and you're like, oh man. Like here in Australia, it's the inevitable cricket or a rugby category. And I'm just like, I don't know anything. Forget it. On Jeopardy, it's if I get like American colleges like mm. this alma mater's mascot and i'm just like i have no idea yeah i'm from canada i live in australia i have no idea any of this stuff but what i love is when you get a category of something that you know a fair bit about because you don't need to know actual hard facts about that category you need to know what someone who is putting together a test who needs what sound like a couple of hard questions about that yeah. in that category. So if it's comic books, it's like, oh, you know, it's going to be some pretty basic. There's going to be an X-Men one. There's going to be a Superman one. There's going to be this. There's going to be that. And this illustrator doesn't know how to draw feet. It's Rob Lifo. You know, like... Who is the Rob? Yeah. I'm not even a comics person. I don't... I just learned that from Brett. <laughs> Brett has very vocal opinions about such things. Exactly. <laughs> he really does. <laughs> As your ever-increasing roommates that are the Marvel Legends figures will attribute. <laughs> We're going to drown in those things. We're going to drown in them. I'm confident that's how I'm going to die. Just choking on, <laughs> like, a Cyclops figure. No, no, come on. You know if you're going to die, it'll be a Liefeld X-Force figure. It'll be like yeah. Feral or Thorn or somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so, I have a question then. So... Being this sort of quiet kid and taking your AP chemistry and stuff, were you singing then? Like, did you come from a musical family or was it just something you picked up along with your other activities? 
I always loved music. It was like my number one thing. We didn't really do music around the house, but my dad, there's like a lot of like latent musical ability in my family. So a lot of folks who like used to play the guitar or like used to play the drums or something like that. So like we had like a crappy out-of-tune piano in the basement that was like missing keys that my brother actually stuffed me into one time. We can get into that later. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I wrote an essay about that one. I joined choir as soon as I could when I was in grade school, I think fourth grade. From then on was never not singing until I moved to New York in 2009. And then there was like a eight month stint. And then I had a church gig here for a couple of years as well before I stopped singing. Not for good, but for most recent. Yeah, I definitely like always, always was singing. I always really excelled in my music classes, tell myself to play the piano. I'm not good. I want to be clear about that. Never got real good at it, but <laughs> I taught myself a couple of pieces. I could play like Mozart's Rondo alla Turca and Hucklebell's Canon, which shoot me in the face. I never <laughs> want to hear that again. Definitely like was soaking up all of the music that I could. But yeah, like we never had music around the house. My dad didn't really listen to music except for like oldies in the car. So most of my musical input came from church and video games. So those were like the two real avenue, <laughs> real avenues of music that I had when I was young. That was pretty much it. One very religious, one extremely secular. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we could talk about Bible adventures, but we're not going to. That's a oh. podcast. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking just briefly about video game music. So what was the stuff that was catching your, your ear? I was going to say your eye, but it's your ear because you're listening because it's music. Oh, God. So when I was in grade school, I fucking loved Mega Man too. Yeah. I soaked up that like synth rock sound like a sponge i really and even to this day like i love synth pop i love it so i really really liked that i loved you know obviously like wrote a book about final fantasy 6 i loved the music from the nes final fantasy game and final fantasy 2 when it came out for the super nintendo loved that pretty much anything i really like i'm very very omnivorous when it comes to music and so you know if i listen to something and sort of like learn the language of that music it's really hard for me not to like enjoy it and kind of fall in love with it but definitely like the synth rock and the i definitely like those two avenues like the synth and the classical like were my two faves so like the final fantasy and the mega man You'll hear Mega Man 2 cited a lot because one, that music rules. And two, because I did a lot of reading about and listening to stuff that in sort of the nascent kind of chiptunes scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So many people cited specifically Mega Man 2 as being like the moment they realized, hey, we could do something with this. Yeah. You can take this chipset, you can use a controller as a MIDI controller and just do it. And this is something where it leads to stuff like you get guys like Anamanaguchi who are just like, mm-hmm. we're going to break it down and we're going to play with everything from the decay of each blip to make it sound a particular way because we know what we want. Come out with these amazing things. So yeah, I, th- I think that's really interesting that you highlighted that as well because that's such a touchstone. And I mean, I'm more familiar with Mega Man X music, but you know, stuff like yeah. I still have the Storm Eagle track on my my pump yeah. up list for the gym. Yeah. Because it's great. That's a great one. Yeah. Hearing that that you're like learning the nuts and bolts of that from that just listening and then realizing, no, there's something to this. I think that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, I was young enough that like 
MIDI was still a thing. Like you would download MIDI files from the internet. So like as soon as I had like an yeah. internet connection, like my little dial up like terminal, I would like scoot onto some websites and download Mega Man 2 and Final Fantasy MIDI files and just like wear them out. <laughs> Initially though, when you wanted to come on the show, you wanted to talk specifically about opera and classical music. So I can understand if you're, you know, learning music and learning singing and that I could see it being an easy step into opera, but where was the point where you went, no, this isn't just homework. This is something that's for me. So when I was in first or second grade, we took a field trip to see the St. Louis symphony. They had like a daytime, like kids concert that they did for like field trips. The symphony in St. Louis plays at this really gorgeous place called Powell symphony hall. And you walk in and it's like, it's got the very like old school kind of like, obviously not like truly baroque because it was built in like the 19 i forget like the 19 something somethings but you know kind of like gilded edges and like scrolly scroll work and like fancy chandeliers and like it just like feels like you're walking into this like totally different world and i remember like walking in and like they had like these marble floors and like the red velvet carpet and i was just like this is insane. So like the first thing that really caught my attention was the space. Like I have this very like specific memory of walking into the lobby of Powell Hall for the first time and then sitting down in the actual like concert space itself and like hearing the symphony play. I like very, I, I remember like conductor's name was Leonard Slatkin. Like he taught us what, you know, like pizzicato meant on the strings, which is like when they pluck the strings of the violins and other stringed instruments instead of bowing them. It's the sneaking up music from cartoons. Precisely. Yeah, the tiptoeing. Yeah, that's how they described it. They described it as tiptoeing. And they, you know, like he told us, you have to be very, very quiet to hear it. So everyone was like, shh, got it. You know, like, but I loved that. And I wouldn't stop talking about that field trip. And so my mom would get me for my birthday. She would like get me symphony tickets and like we would, go eat at Pizza Hut and then like go to the symphony together. (laughs) And like, I don't remember anything like the, any specific pieces that they played, but I just remember it, it feeling like this really like wonderful, magical experience. Yeah. I loved it. It was very early on when I got turned on to it. I love that juxtaposition of we ate at a Pizza Hut and now we went to the symphony. Yeah. Beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. You can sum my life up pretty much with that old story. (laughs) If you were talking particular composers, like who grabbed you? Who was the one who was just like, I don't know if it's, this is the one for me or this is the one that really gets my attention. You know, there are a couple of entry level pieces that I feel like everyone who likes classical music knows and listen to like very early on in their, you know, appreciation journey. One of them for me was Vivaldi's Four Seasons. I really enjoy that. And Bach's Brandenburg Concertos. I loved those as well. And then when I was in, I don't know, like sixth grade, my parents gave me a really, really cheap CD player and two like bargain bin CDs, one of the Brandenburg Concertos Bach, and then a couple of symphonies by Mozart. And I remember listening to the Mozart and hating it. I <laughs> hated it. And I was like, like, I'm never going to listen to this. This sucks. <laughs> but I really, really love the Bach because it was just like wild. The true irony now of that is that I love Mozart and really don't care for Bach that much. Like, 
<laughs> I like Bach. You know, like, it's impossible not to, like, like Bach. But, like, I love Mozart, like, so much more. So, yeah, those were sort of, like, the really early pieces. And then in terms of, like, opera specifically, there were, like, two, I think, really formative moments for me. The first, unsurprisingly, fifth grade, playing Final Fantasy three a.k.a. Final <laughs> Fantasy VI, hitting that opera scene was like a revelation. You know, like I think it was for a lot of people who played through it, and that's why, you know, like I ended up writing a book on it. But that was like my first like, oh, opera could be interesting. I kind of liked that. And then like took a trip to the symphony again, like in middle school or early high school to see the Messiah, like around Christmas time, they do the first part of the Messiah and then the Hallelujah Chorus. The second moment was in my AP music theory class as a senior in high school. It was like, I think after we had taken the test a couple of classes later, my teacher like put on the DVD of the Ingmar Bergman directed production of the magic flute that aired on like Swedish television. It's like, it's actually like part of the Criterion collection. So it's like a real okay. movie. It sounds like weird to describe, but like it's, it's shot like in a, that way. Yeah. 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 It's like, it reads like a movie, even though it's kind of a stage product. It's like a weird hybrid thing. It's kind of hard to explain, but there's a quintet in God, I'm going to shoot myself. I think it's the first act. If it's the second act, I'm going to shoot myself, but it, I think it's the first <laughs> act. There's a quintet with the three ladies and Papageno and Tamino. And I remember like hearing all of those voices interacting and just sort of like the way they worked together, like really struck me and like hearing that. And then like, obviously like the queen of the night aria, which a lot of folks know if you've heard an opera aria, it's probably that one because it's, it's wild. But like, I think those two pieces from the magic flute mozart mozart who i've heard sucks yeah 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 <laughs> who i truly thought i hated until actually until like that moment and i think it was then that i was like oh i've been doing choral singing this whole time and like i would sing in competitions for school and it never occurred to me that like that was a thing that you could really like do and my teacher was a former like professional mezzo soprano so she was like, yeah, you know, like I used to teach at Washington University. If you're interested in double majoring, that's a really good school to go to. And you know, I ended up going there, but I also had, I had auditioned for a couple of conservatories and I ended up choosing WashU because it had like a more robust academic program. And I was like, well, I don't know if I'm going to end up being a singer. I kind of need a backup plan. So... <laughs> naturally i chose Sorry. french literature i was just about to say i'm like this is gonna sound really cruel but you know what? i need something steady that will guarantee a job french literature yeah. it is <laughs> yeah well i Sorry. thought you know like i thought no 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 it was a really stupid <laughs> really stupid move on my part but i thought you know like i probably teach french or be like a high school choir teacher or something if singing didn't work out yeah i was wrong on both counts i ended up being a writer so there you go Funny old world. I suppose the big question about opera, and this is something that I, I mentioned sort of when we were setting up the episode, that I do quite enjoy opera and I enjoy classical music, but I enjoy it in a very millennial scattershot way, which is I find something I like and I throw it onto the massive classical playlist that is on my Spotify. And then I hit random on that and every once in a while I hear something and I'll, oh, I remember this one and I'll, and I'll kind of learn it that way because 
I played the drums, and so the only way I know how to learn music is by rote and through repetition. But what I found is that I started with, of all things, Burnout Paradise, because it had a whole bunch of licensed music in it. Most of it was pretty good. A lot of it was junk. But then right at the end of the list of tracks, they had like just 10 classical pieces and not some of the ones that I had heard before. And I remembered always liking when it got to that part, to the point where I went into some of the menus and I turned off all the other music. At first, it was just the juxtaposition of, you know, me launching cars off of buildings to smash into other cars <laughs> to Vivaldi or something. But then it's like, well, I'm sure this will be on Spotify. Someone's written this up. And then I, I found that and I found the same guy had done a GTA one because GTA also has several classical stations on the radio. And so I started with those. And then every time someone will mention a bit of music in a book or in a movie or something. When the first season of Daredevil came on and there was, I think it was the Bach piece that the Kingpin listened to all the time. Was it Bach? Mm. I think so. Oh yeah. I remember. I remember. Yeah. Where he makes his omelet and stuff and like listening to it. And it was one of the, I think it's one of the cello suites. Just like listening to it. I'm like, that's cool. I'll put that on my list and like working my way through. Oh yeah. It was the uh, cello. God damn it. I know the piece you're talking about. I can't think of the name of it. I know exactly. Yeah, I know. I know exactly the piece you're talking about. I've got like three three recordings of it. I can't think of the name. Um, <laughs> now it's driving me crazy. Now I got to look it up. Go um, on, look it up. I will look something else up in the meantime. <laughs> oh yeah, it's his six suites for cello. There you go. And the other thing I looked it up because I wanted to be sure because again I can't just so go. Oh, you know some particular Beethoven thing. It's like no, I want to get it right. Is I saw a movie called A Late Quartet with Christopher Walken and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm-hmm. And Catherine Keener, and it's a very good movie. And it was one of those movies where I saw, like, on my own, and then no one else had seen it, and so I couldn't talk about it with anyone, which was incredibly annoying to me. Yeah. (laughs) But the whole movie is about a quartet who has been very famous, like, similar to, like, you know, the Brentano String Quartet or something, where it's like Mm -hmm. they are the people who do that, and they're retiring. And they want to perform uh, the String Quartet number 14, Opus 131, Okay. In one go. And it's then a question of like, can they stay together enough in their personal lives as, I don't know if you know this, but people who are professional musicians, especially in the classical space, tend to be high strung and weird. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that before. Yeah, <laughs> truly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yep, yeah, that's the truth. They played the entire thing in the film. And I remember listening to it and going, I kind of love this. And then putting it into the mix of my classical playlist and then like making its own playlist because it is such its own thing where you can't really listen to a bit of it and be like, well, that's this incredibly lonely first part. I'll just go on with my date. No, you have to still see it through to the end. So I suppose where I'm the incredibly long winded way I'm coming around to this question is that I think with classical music and with opera, there is a barrier to entry. Yes. And I'm not even talking about people who say, oh, it's boring because shut up. I suppose, like, with my view, like I said, I take it from a millennial standpoint where I'm picking and choosing from references and throwing it into a big playlist. I don't have any of the context for these things. Mm -hmm. And I feel like for people who are into opera and classical music, context is almost everything. Like, there is so much to, well, this is where this person was when they wrote this thing. Yeah. This is what the world was like when this person was writing this thing. This is the story they're trying to tell. And I think divorcing it from that context might be losing something. Do you kind of get where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah, I totally understand. And I think that barrier to entry actually is a really important thing to touch on because it is actually really difficult to experience classical music because you have to go to very specific spaces for it and you have to be able to afford tickets to it, which is not always like a thing that you can do 
Otherwise, it's that or you like walk into the classical section at, you know, like Barnes and Noble and are like, oh, okay, I see all these CDs that I have no idea what they are. So these Nexus CDs that were terrible to shelve when I worked at Borders. Yeah, yeah. The (laughs) Nexus CDs. Yeah, there are like a million of them. You know, like it was different mid-century in the the 50s and 60s because you had like Leonard Bernstein on television. Like there would be like concerts and like people were listening to the radio more and like the Met would do broadcasts of their operas. I think they still do on like Saturday afternoons or something. But like that sort of like pop culture connection to classical music really faded away. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, like I'm kind of in the same boat where a lot of my early exposure to classical music was through pop culture, right? So like you mentioned, I I forget the name of the movie you just mentioned. Lake Quartet, yeah. Watching the movie, God, is it Shine? Is that the one about the the Oh, yes, 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 yeah. Yeah, the Rock 3, the Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto. You're like hearing that and it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to listen to that. And then you like listen to it and you're like, oh, this is fucking great. Like maybe I'll listen to this other piece by Rachmaninoff. And like I sang some Rachmaninoff in choir in high school. So like I was really into Rachmaninoff for a while. But yeah, you know, like it's that or like you figure out a way to like get to the symphony hall and read the liner notes or, you know, like you take like a music appreciation class or like a musicology class in school. And that's how you learn about this stuff. It's really, really tough, I think, to be that steeped in it because you really, unlike pop music, which you can listen to and you understand it. Like I I mentioned, like understanding the language of a certain kind of music. Like you listen to pop music and you get it, right? Because it's like of the moment and it's like of the world we're living in. Whereas, like, if you're listening to older classical music, it's like, I don't know what this is. I wasn't around when this was written. Like, uh. And then, you know, like, contemporary classical music is its own whole thing in terms of, like, accessibility and, and digestibility. And, yeah, I definitely feel you there. We're just about out of time. But I think... Oh, no. If we're going to go out on something, let's talk about if you were to recommend something to someone. And I'm not talking about your usual stuff that you mentioned before that everyone kind of gets trotted out. Uh, if you, Something that for you would exemplify why it is that you love opera. What would you recommend to someone that is also like, okay, here is your two inch thick tome that will tell you why this opera is good. What do you think would strike that iron as it were? I still return to that quintet from the Magic Flute quite a bit. I think there's something really magical about it it's the moment where Tamino like gets the magic flute, like where they give him the flute for the, the first time. It's kind of ineffable. Like I, I can't quite put my finger on why I love it so much, but it's sort of from beginning to end really takes you somewhere. So I really love that. I mean, there are a couple of other pieces that I scoot back to. It's actually, I was just talking about contemporary classical and how it's not always necessarily digestible, but there's this opera written in the 80s called Nixon in China. Um, and it's <laughs> okay. It's literally about Richard Nixon opening up relations <laughs> with China. Madame Mao sings this. It's like, I call it the machine gun aria, where she's really selling that little red book, screaming about it. And it's like this really virtuosic moment. And you can go on YouTube. There are a few stagings of it, but like it's funny a little bit but it's also genuinely (laughs) genuinely terrifying like as you're watching it unfold on stage so i think that's a really cool one as well just because of that juxtaposition of irony and also authenticity and it's also like a lot of people don't 
know of any classical music past like 1910. So it's really interesting to hear something like that. But God, there's got to be one definitive piece that I can say. Again, it's funny that you've got an, an example of something political being done as an opera because before there was Hamilton here in Australia, there was something called Keating the Musical, which was about Prime Minister Paul Keating. And mm. I went to see that at a little theater next to the university and bought the CD and the DVD of it because, again, it was incredibly catchy and, and good music. But God forbid, it actually touches stuff. Yeah. So this idea of <laughs> conflating the politics of the day or in this case, you know, maybe about 10, 15 years before, with music that will will bring across those big ideas. I've always thought it was something that, that is really special. So I like that. I like the idea of being like, oh, this is a big thing that's happening. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write an opera about it. Yeah. And y'all can just groove on that. <laughs> yeah. And there's another, there's a Philip Glass opera, The Death of Klinghoffer. This is another one that if I got it wrong just now, I'm going to be murdered. It is the death of Klinghoffer, but I just made a a cardinal sin, which is that it's actually written by John Adams, the same guy who wrote Nixon in China. Ah. And that's also a very political one about an incident that I do not remember, but it's one that gets protested actually when it gets performed because people accuse it of being anti-semitic or not anti-semitic enough i don't know (laughs) it's like that's a a very political one if i had to pick one piece it's so personal to make a recommendation like this because it depends so much on your history what you sort of touched on and when so i'm actually going to give two pieces to recommend and they're both actually sacred music returning to my catholic roots (laughs) not a religious person but i think growing up in a very religious household kind of like leaves its stamp on you the first is foray's requiem just a very sweet tender funeral mass it's extremely lovely I don't know how else to put it. (laughs) Very personal connection to that one because I had a gig in St. Louis where I sang the baritone solo with this choir and this pickup string ensemble. I guess it was like just a chamber ensemble, not a string ensemble. But that was actually the last time my mom heard me sing before she passed away. And so it was like, I loved the piece going into it. And then that extra layer of meaning added to it just made it, whenever I listened to it, it just like, it really like gets me in the gut. So that's one. Another one is a piece I sang in college, The Stabat Mater by Francis Poulenc, P-O-U-L-E-N-C. Not a composer a lot of folks know about outside of classical music enthusiasts, but French composer active in the mid-20th century. It's this sacred piece. He was like a very, like, he had like this religious awakening in the middle of his life. And he wrote this piece called The Stabat Mater, which is about the crucifixion of Christ, but like from the viewpoint of Mary, or at least that's the best way I can remember it because the text is in Latin, the whole text is in Latin, but it's a extremely grand in scale. And it really runs this gamut of just stupid to (laughs) really, really like inexplicable like just like it has this whole scale of like stupid to utterly divine which sums up Poulenc as a composer but also just like shows the incredible range that classical music can have like in to me one piece I hate it when people describe the music with the word haunting 
but it, I think it sticks with you a little bit and spooks you a little bit because the music has that kind of quality. You can't walk away without a piece of it kind of like jabbed in your chest. Those are the two pieces I think I would recommend most of all. See, I think any performance that can be described as you won't walk away without having a piece of it jabbed in your chest, I would go see any concert that someone told me that. <laughs> if I trusted their opinion, they said to me, oh, like that could be anyone from Nico Case or, or Phoebe Bridgers or anybody. But it's like because it's about something, like you said, because it's about a, a, a lesser known French composer, you'd think that would stop people from going. Absolutely not. I want to be hurt by a piece of music. Damn it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a really, really great recording of it. it. To me, it's hard to find a really great recording of it. This is another thing about classical music is that like everyone has like the recording of a piece that they love and then like every other recording is wrong. <laughs> but there are a couple of really great recordings. There's one recording of Kathleen Battle, the great soprano, singing the soprano solo. And I don't love the recording aside from her, but hearing her sing the soprano solos in that piece is other world it's just like out of this world it's so so good so that's one if you're interested in listening to it it's like the atlanta symphony orchestra kathleen battle cool all right well we are out of time unfortunately so seb if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet where would they go you can follow me on twitter at sebsational like sensational but with a b i think that's probably the best place to go i am also on instagram with the same handle you can find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> no, but yeah, Twitter, Instagram, those are the places to go. Um, and you will see me do some extreme shit posting in both places. So <laughs> Plug the book. Plug the book. Oh, yeah. And my book, Final Fantasy VI for Boss Fight Books, is coming out early 2021. It's in its final sort of like round of proofing and editing now and hitting the presses hopefully within the next couple of months. So it's wild. It's been a long journey with that one. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and I will let you return to what I presume is an ongoing heart-to-heart -heart marathon in your house. Ugh, yeah. There's a lot of 80s television <laughs> happening right now. Uh, yeah. Whatever gets you through the night. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. This has really been a lot of fun. I wish I had a chance to yell at more people about classical music more often. Always a pleasure to do that, and obviously a pleasure to speak with you. Se croise tous les jours comme un couple en amour Elle lui sourit légèrement avec un tas d'arrière-pensées Regarde toujours où il va, ce qu'il fait Dans son rétroviseur, mais elle n'a jamais Quand elle ne le voit pas un matin, elle s'inquiète Comme s'il lui appartenait un peu dans sa tête Elle n'a jamais Thank you very much to Sebastian Deacon for his time. As Sebastian doesn't drink, we'll be making a mocktail today. And by Seb's own admission, he's really terrible at narrowing down recommendations. So he's given me a massive list of flavors, some of which I've been able to combine into a very nice concoction if I say so myself. It's called the Madame Mao. We're gonna start by making some rosemary and ginger simple syrup. So combine half a cup of water, half a cup of sugar, one and a half inches of fresh ginger sliced up, and three sprigs of rosemary. Simmer and then bring to a boil until all the sugar is dissolved. Allow to cool and strain into a container. It should last in the fridge for about two weeks. For the drink, combine three ounces of grapefruit juice, 
one ounce of rosemary ginger syrup, and three ounces of sparkling water. Build ingredients over ice and stir. Garnish with a sprig of rosemary. Let me be a grain of sand in heaven's eye, and I shall taste eternal joy. Enjoy! The Matthew View is recorded in Ryde, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every second Thursday, although it is currently Sunday, sorry about that, or whenever I get them finished. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathaview at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at The Math of You, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Normally, I would tell you that you can pledge as much as you want and say something ridiculous here, but honestly, there are a lot of places that need your money, and every dollar counts. If you want to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or any of the places where you find podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. It'll help our metrics and help people find the show. Or you can leave a review and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash you with capitals at the beginning of each word to find a Spotify playlist going all the way back to episode one with every song I've ever used, including this one. It's Riot by Dragonette. I actually expected to use a ton of classical music in this episode, but Seb came through with a ton of really good, like, French electropop suggestions, and that's right in my wheelhouse, so I had to use just about everything he suggested. I update the playlist as soon as the episode is live, so make sure you subscribe to get that new music in your ears. I haven't locked down my next guest yet, but make sure you drop by for what I'm sure will be a great conversation. Join me, won't you? Food hadn't arrived, and I'm like, oh my god! If I get on, and I'm just like hangry, I'm like, who are you? What do you want? <laughs> but it's fine. And you can have a fig bar, and I'll eat sushi. But he said eating through a mouthful of sushi. <laughs> it's really funny. I told Brett this the other day. My friend Mary, who lives here in Sydney, posted a picture of your cat Jean to her Instagram story, and I went, "That's Jean Parmesan." <laughs> Why am I looking at that? At my friend Mary's Instagram, and she lives in Stanmore, New South Wales, Australia. Why am I seeing a New York cat that is Brett and Seb's cat? This is weird. And so I messaged her. And she's like, oh, it was from... The, it's like, I just love the name. It's from this tweet that got retweeted into my feed. It was your one where it's like, oh, here is Jane. You know, that's the only reason. Yeah. Because at first I was like, how do you know Brett and Seb? And she's like, oh, I don't. But if you know them, tell them their cat's name is excellent. I'm like, I tell them that every day. <laughs> So I told Brett, 
That was such a weird, funny thing to have. I did not expect that tweet to go viral. And then two or three people like reached out to me on Twitter. They were like, we follow each other on Instagram. I've seen your cats before. I didn't, why aren't we following each other on Twitter too? <laughs> it's so weird. So how did you end up in Australia? I'll give you the short version, which is that after university, I was looking at traveling and I originally meant to travel for a few months to the UK, mm -hmm. the way a lot of people in Canada tend to, but I had the wrong visa and it turned into a giant fiasco and then basically booted me out of the country in 10 days as opposed to three months, crestfallen back at home because I had blown my money on this ticket and yeah. like had been planning this trip for a long time. My dad was like, hey, you've got friends in Australia from your <laughs> your Buffy the Vampire Slayer message board. Uh, why don't you go? <laughs> hey, man, it was, it was like 2002. It was okay. And so he's like, why don't you go see them? And so that became the next thing. And initially I came and at the time, uh, the person I was staying with was a friend who became a girlfriend who uh, eventually sponsored me for a partner visa, and we got married, and then we got divorced, and now I'm here. Hmm. But coming up in February, it'll be 18 years I've been here wow. in Australia. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Like, if <laughs> if my time in Australia was a person, he'd be able to drink in Quebec, but not in Ontario. <laughs> but not yet old enough to get a discount on car insurance. Hmm. That's coming in a few years. What, 21? Is it 21? <laughs> I think so, yeah. I've never rented a car. I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> I did a thing once where I joked where I was like, the Fast and the Furious movies, do you think they're old enough to drink? Are they old enough to drive a car? Or are they old enough to rent a carpet shampooer? And the answer was <laughs> drink, because apparently you have to be 25 to rent a carpet shampooer. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> I looked it up. The quote was, they keep that shit under lock and key at the Ingles. <laughs> Oh, also, I was going to say, you and Brett's Christmas decorations were kind of an inspiration this year. Oh, yeah? We didn't go as hardcore as you guys. We didn't put it between every picture. But I did get out the ladder and hang the icicle lights from the edge of the roof and, like, you know, do the trees out front and got the candy canes that stick in the flower beds at the front of the house and stuff. Nice. And I did all that, and I got it all set up. And I was very proud of myself because, unlike my dad, who would have just staple gunned every Christmas light against the house i found that in the gutters they had these like crossbar things and i got one of those like you know, make your own twist tie kind of reels and i would just hang a twist tie off of every one of those gutter bars and then tie the lights to that so i could untie them but leave the twist ties till next year nice i was very happy with that but then we like turned them on and we turned on the christmas tree in the window and we were both standing at the street and we we're looking in and we we're like this is nice i'm really happy with that and we looked up and down the street and it was December 21st, and literally nobody had any other lights up. <laughs> so one neighbor had one string of lights on his balcony, just around the edge, and that's it. So we are the Griswolds in our neighborhood. That is hilarious. That's hilarious. Yeah, and someone's like, oh, I guess you guys are really into Christmas. I was like, maybe, maybe this year, I guess? Like, <laughs> if not this year, then when, right? Right. Yeah, now more than ever. 